This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Guyana to a political family, but was sent to England for her education. Fleeing dictatorship in Guyana, she couldn't receive financial support from her family and so began finding work in hotels and handing out flyers. With an entrepreneurial spirit, my guest set up her first company in 1987 before moving to the world of finance. Throughout her life, she has challenged authority and power across various sectors, but the one she is best known for is Brexit. She set up the first legal challenge to the government's attempts to trigger Article 50 in 2016, thereby changing the course of history. Since then, she has set up her own party and is running for a seat in Parliament in the next election. My guest today is Gina Miller. So Gina, thank you for coming on Women with Balls today. Um, To begin, we always begin with the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? It was happy, noisy, colourful, full of energy... Um, my father was um, a politician from, from day one and a lawyer. And my mother was, I think, an eco-warrior before the term was even invented. So she was a botanist. And so it was. Uh, I grew up in, in Guyana. So it was a lot of colour, a lot of noise, a lot of... I mean, I had three dogs, two parrots and a monkey as a pet. So <laughs> completely mad childhood. But also uh, one that where my parents really pushed about education and, and learning. And you mentioned, obviously, the fact that your father was a politician. Does that mean that you were very aware of the politics of where you were growing up? More the law politics, was a, um, but also our country was going through a really tough time where um, there was a, a, a civil war breaking out, we had a dictator. So there was always talk about safety and helping people and riots. So, so I'm very aware of politics, but small p rather than any political alignment, as it were. And uh, around 10 years old, you came to the UK. Um, What was the motivation of your parents there? It was to stay safe because um, my father had actually started a political party. Uh, He wasn't leader, but he was instrumental in forming it. And the very charismatic leader um, was under threat. The dictator had a death squad and my brother and I were actually on the list. So my parents snuck us out to the most safe place they could find in England. So I ended up in Eastbourne just fairly safe and quiet I think all the way from South America so it was a bit of a shock because I'd never left home before I'd never I don't think I'd actually even stayed away for much so suddenly I was in England in yeah the sun uh, sun trap of England <laughs> yeah I was gonna say you've gone from having all these lovely pets and monkeys <laughs> yeah, and to, life to, to Eastbourne, Eastbourne. <laughs> it was definitely different because I'd grown up obsessed with books so I mean you know reading all the Bronte books and Dickens England, the reality of it was a little different from uh, what I was expecting, but it was more the shock of, of being away from, from my parents and my home. And all of a sudden, I had to be grown up and responsible. It, it, was, um, it felt as though one life had died and I'd suddenly got thrown into another one that I didn't understand. And did you find the pupils at school, your classmates, were they welcoming? It was a very dysfunctional school that my parents found. It was actually started, it was a girls' school, that was a very small school that was started by an army general who believed the girls should be educated exactly like boys back in 1875. So, you know... So what does that mean? It, you know, so we, we did cricket, rugby, sciences, you know, all this, you know, he literally... Um, but no boys. Us, no boys, no, just we were... Just the life we, of a boy. We, we, boy. Yeah, we were like tomboys. I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, I loved it, but... Uh, 
it was a very international set of girls and we all thought we could do anything. So it was all, uh, it was very empowering school. So do you know how to play rugby? Yeah, I do. Okay, good. <laughs> what position? No, don't ask that because you know what I'm going to say. It's going to be hooker. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I actually ended up playing cricket at quite a good level. So I can, I don't know. You dig a lot better than me. Um, now, when you were 14, where your parents were, they were still at home. And currency restrictions, I think, were put in place, which meant they could no longer send you any money. What does that mean for you? Did that mean you didn't have much money to go by? Or? No. So, uh, yeah, they introduced currency restrictions, which meant that nobody, no foreign currency could be sent out of Ghana. So my parents had put aside a bit of money so for school fees. So what they did is they bought a small flat. And my elder brother, who's two years and uh, older than myself, they just said, this won't last long. You've both got to try and survive. So another big shock was finding ourselves in the flat, pretending to school that we had someone looking after us when we didn't. Because um, your brother was, what, 16? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he was just coming up 16, I was in 14. So we thought we'd help. Um, my parents were actually just surviving. So we both went and got jobs. Old town in Eastbourne. So my brother worked washing up at the old ship pub. And I got myself a chambermaiding job at the Grand Hotel in Eastbourne. So I'd get up at sort of five o'clock in the morning, do a couple of hours and then go to school. And while balancing that job with um, your education, <laughs> yeah. you then decided to study law. So your, your grades were pretty good, I'm guessing. Um, they're not as good as they should have been. And actually, my, my parents were really disappointed. I was going to be the best goddamn barrister there was, criminal barrister. So I you know, had my sights set very high. But no, I didn't achieve the grades I was supposed to. I did well, so I could get into university, but not the universities I wanted to. Yeah, you went but to that the Polytechnic. Yeah, so yeah. I went there and, uh, you know, it was... At least I was on my path to study law, and that's what I'd always dreamed. I wanted to be my father, basically. Um, when your parents were disappointed, did you point out that you were having to do shifts in the morning as a chambermaid? Oh gosh, no, no, no! My parents no. wouldn't have wouldn't have taken that. You know, it was they, they were very strict. It was you know you got on and you did and you survived and you know yeah. you've got it better than other people. So my parents were not the sorts who would uh, give you much leeway, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and how did you find university life? I mean, I loved studying law. I absolutely loved it, and uh, it was. I was just so excited about everything to do with it and I couldn't wait to go and then do the next stage but I never got there because I actually never I didn't get my law degree I I never took my final exams Uh, and why was that coming up to my finals I was attacked on campus by a group of of men and very badly sexually assaulted so I didn't turn up at university the university tried to hush it up and actually I was on course to get a first and they offered me a first and I felt I was in nowhere near anywhere where I could even contemplate. So I just sort of withdrew from life for about eight to nine months. And uh, when I came back, the thought of going back and redoing my year is not something I could mentally, physically, emotionally do. So I never went back to law. And the really odd thing is, is that 30 years later to the time when I would have graduated, the same university, now University of East uh, London, actually gave me an honorary doctorate uh, law doctorate and they didn't know anything about what had happened to me and I I, I mean I they, they, just, they knew you'd studied there they yeah. knew I'd yeah. studied there but they didn't yeah. know what had happened so to have received that was quite an emotional day for me as you say that experience must have been incredibly difficult and you withdraw withdraw from university but in your own words from life a bit what kind of gets you back you get married quite soon after um, well no because I, I just 
decided I couldn't face anything academic, university or anything else. So, but I'd always been good at uh, selling things or coming up with ideas and, you know, very much an entrepreneurial mindset. So I sort of started working. I just went straight into work and decided that I was going to, if I couldn't work in the law, then I was going to build businesses and, and try and do the best I could. And I'm right to say that you then, at which point, got married and had your first child? Yeah, so I started my first business when I was 20, back in 2000, and, uh, not 2000, gosh, seems such a long time ago, forget how old I am, um, 1986. And things were going really well, but then Black Monday happened, sorry, in October 87, and lots of businesses suffered and mine suffered and I had to close it. But that was my first business, but I really loved being an entrepreneur. I loved building my business, and I and so it was the start of what I do over and over again. Yeah. Eventually, you end up getting a degree in human resource management, I think. So, yeah. is that an, so at what back. point do you think, actually, I do want to study again? No, so what happened in the meantime is that I had my daughter, who was my gorgeous baby girl, but she was starved of oxygen. People don't realise that when you have a special needs child, it quite it not only is it challenging for you as parents but it quite often leads to a breakup of a marriage, and I'm afraid it did for me, because her father wanted her to be put in an institution, and I wouldn't. Um, in those days, back in, in the you know late 80s. So what kind of care did she require? So she's now, she'll be 36 soon, yeah. and her mental age is about five or six. So she was starved of oxygen at birth. And so I ended up being single and thinking, what do I do? And even though I loved marketing, I wanted to have a, an educational underpinning. So what I did was went back and studied, I did a degree in marketing. Yeah. And at this point, are you thinking at all about, perhaps it's not party politics, but do you have quite a strong sense of justice or current affairs? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my sense of justice has always been there. So yeah. all, I mean, I'm now on my fifth business and all my businesses I've operated on what I call a trip and bottom line to so the idea of profit plus people and planet. So I've always operated like that. I mean, I was one of the triple bottom liners back in 1996. The whole idea that every business should have a social good and actually, you know, you should use your social capital as well as your capital to grow and and earn profit. So I've always had that belief that that's what you do. When you earn, you give back as well. So I've, uh, yeah, I've always done that. Is it fair to say your first foray into campaigning was financial transparency? Actually, my first real uh, fighting was because of my daughter, my eldest daughter. She sort of awoke the lioness in me, if you like, because when she was starved of oxygen, to, when I tried to get her into school, there was no statements. There was nothing for children with special needs. You had to have a lot of money to have a specialist, to have, you know, a, a diagnosis. And I just felt that was wrong. I thought every child, every parent of somebody who's got special needs, or a child with special needs, should have support and access. So I started campaigning. And because of my legal training, I started looking at how you could use policy and my work ended up with some of the what became the 1996 Education Act and the requirement for schools to provide governors to provide help for children on the spectrum so that was my first awakening of real campaigning but the actual I suppose more politically motivated campaigning was yeah when I started working in the city and I realized that you know the, the biggest open secrets were the amount of ripoffs and products that were being sold that weren't right for people and there was it was so many scandal after scandal and nobody was speaking up so I started exposing a lot of the bad behavior in the city and did these efforts earn you the nickname black widow spider (laughs) that that was just so bizarre so one summer was at um, a a summer party and this group of men I have to say 
being in the city in the 90s and noughties were quite an experience. Um, you know, we were we were what really you say the gender ratio was? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, you know, we... Oh, and the, the bullying, when I look back on it, I think the, the misogyny and the bullying the women that we went through, I'm amazed any of us actually stayed in the city at the time. Not that it's that much better now, but it's, you know, it's better now than it was there. But aggressions weren't microaggressions. They were literally in your face. And, you know, you were told. I remember the, that was my first nickname. My first nickname in the city was uh, Directive Lipstick. Why was because, that? Because apparently in those days we were told you shouldn't wear lipstick. You shouldn't wear makeup when you go to work because it's too feminine. You know, you had to wear pinstripe suits and big shoulder pads and so look like, like the school, men. Yeah, yeah, like you have school to, teaching yeah, to yeah, boys. You, yeah, so. you, yeah, you have to be, you know, you know, masks can be like the men, basically. So you couldn't be feminine anyway. So the fact that I used to wear makeup as up, I got this nickname of uh, directive lipstick. Um, but no, the Black Widow Spider thing was just bizarre because they came up to me, this group of men, and said... I can't, you've got to stop your, stop your campaigning. You know, what you're going to do is bring down the city. And I thought, by myself, little old me, I'm going to bring down the city. I don't think so. And then they said, you know, you're like a black widow spider. And everything about that is wrong. But the fact they'd gone to the trouble to find a nickname for me, I just thought I must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, also, black widow spiders are quite powerful. I know, that's why I thought I must be doing something right. <laughs> Um, now, I think most of our listeners, probably your first came to prominence when it came to what was happening on Brexit and, of course, Article 50. So I suppose just for our listeners, I mean, were you, you mentioned EU directors. Were you, yeah. were you someone who always felt very strongly about the European Union or did something else kind of, you know, to, to understand your thinking, really? Yeah, no, no, no. I'd always, because um, I, I love history um, and I've always, so I've, very much a, a, a read lots of Churchill's diaries and uh, so I understood the formation of the union and the fact that it was never again and so I understood the origins of it but then the actual workings of it I came into contact when I was working on the directive so from after the from the financial crisis happening all the way through to 2015 I'd been working with not just the EU commission and the uh, different member countries on financial legislation and consumer protections but also on how the actual how you could improve transparency across the the eu but also in the uk so that's when i really understood about standing committees where we were as members how important we were and how much work because i didn't appreciate before then how much work we were doing that we would lend people to the eu that we had civil servants lawyers we had really we were really important to the work of the eu and that's when i saw it at first hand when the EU referendum was first called, did you think, uh, you know, Remain will likely win? Did you think there was a chance Leave could win? When I first heard about it, I didn't even work through the fact of when it was going to happen. I just kept focusing on the fact, do they know what they're doing? This is both, you know, Clegg and Cameron. I was thinking, I really hope this isn't a political play. This isn't a game because this is really important. And I never lost that feeling throughout it, thinking this is more about politics and actually understanding the nitty gritty and how things work. Bearing in mind that I'd seen it. So I, I, that was always, to me, something that was deeply worrying. So the result comes through. Leave has won. It's a result that shocks many. And I just wonder if you could talk listeners through the period between that result coming through and your decision to bring forward the legal challenge on Article 50. When the referendum result came through and then follow on to that, Mrs May started talking about triggering Article 50, 
I'm enough of a geek to have actually know what Article 50 said. I'd actually read it and I knew the 100, I think it's 126 words. That's how geeky I am, I think, in it. And it's actually one of the worst bits of legislation you could possibly. I know British lawyers um, drafted it, but it's probably one of the worst bits of legislation because nobody ever, I don't think everyone, anyone thought it would ever be used. So first of all, you had a prime minister saying they were going to trigger it. And I'm thinking to myself, but you don't have the powers to trigger that. You can't bypass parliament. And secondly, the implications of it are so huge, surely you're going to have impact studies and really debate this before you actually do it. Because the Brexit referendum vote was the first bit, the first part of so many other parts that needed to fall into line. And I just couldn't understand why nobody was talking about it. Because the way our, we, we do have a constitution, there's just lots of different bits that put come together to, to form it. One of the bits of our constitution is that once a precedent is set, then another prime minister can follow that. So if Mrs May had set the precedent that a prime minister could use the royal prerogative on the domestic plane and change our rights, that means any prime minister could do that. And to me, that was shockingly alarming. That was so much bigger than Brexit. That would completely change the way prime ministers could operate. And again, I didn't understand why all MPs, I don't really care which party they were from, why everybody wasn't jumping up and shouting about this. And when you decided to start embarking on this case, did you receive much abuse early on or how, how did it start? To, because the whole obviously thing was lots- an accident. <laughs> Honest, the whole thing was an accident because basically it was myself and two other individuals, very successful businessmen, and uh, we were debating whether or not we should bring this case. And then there were other two or three other sets of uh, individuals who were looking at cases. So we approached the court and I think there were four cases that approached the courts. And... It's very unusual to have a lead claimant and to be told you're the lead case. But that's what happened when we went to seek permission is Lord Leveson said, Mrs. Miller, you're the lead claimant and your case is a lead case. So I was never supposed to be there. And when the abuse started after that, once he named me as a lead claimant, the other two uh, very successful individuals said they couldn't put up with the abuse. They couldn't take the risk. So they stepped away and I was all by myself. (laughs) And at that point, you're the figurehead. Yeah, at that point, I'm then become, as um, I know one newspaper called me, the the avatar of hate. I was suddenly the only person. And I have to say, I presumed very naively that other people would step up. I thought other MPs, other constitutional uh, experts, lawyers, I thought a whole raft of people would join me. I never imagined I'd be on my own. And I think it's the abuse and the vitriol and the death threats and everything that resulted that meant that people were really frightened. It was a really febrile time. But having been through, I mean, a lot of people didn't know who I was. You say, a lot of people think I popped up from nowhere. <laughs> but, you know, I say it took 32 years for me to pop up from nowhere, having been a campaigner before. And probably meant you felt, I think, from those previous campaigns, such as particularly, you know, the charity sector and others, you probably had a pretty thick skin by this point, right? I had a thick, yeah, I had a thick skin professionally as a campaigner. But personally, I'm also, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. And I'm thinking, you have no idea who I am. I mean, I've, I'm a survivor. There, it, you know, your words are not going to hurt me. And, you know, somebody called me a bloody difficult woman, woman and I think Mrs. May used to be called that too. Uh, but, yeah, I, I was so focused on what I was doing that it really didn't touch me. And that's not a good thing. Because eventually, when I had time to reflect on it afterwards, and two people did go to, to get prosecuted, one, well, both went to jail, that really struck me what I was doing. And the harm it was doing to my children and my family 
in terms of the abuse the, or, the abuse yeah. and the alarm we we sort of went into lockdown even before lockdown started because we never i stopped going out i stopped do, we, we our lives stopped um we were looked after by the terrorist squad I, for nearly two years my entire life changed and i didn't i hadn't well i had no idea what was going to happen and you end up surviving going through it but then when that stopped i couldn't understand any of it i couldn't understand why i had become such a figure of hate when what i was doing which is the irony of this i was thinking to myself but i'm talking about parliamentary sovereignty why is no one listening and i think that was the most frustrating thing for me is that because i mean because ultimately what you, the supreme court ruled in your favor which is that parliament must have a vote yeah. to trigger article 50 but do you think that was because it became conflated with this idea of stopping brexit yeah i mean i, I which is, is something you you were never pro-Brexit. No, I, they're I, two different things. No, 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 no. I, I was for Remain and, and Reform, and I think there were lots of things that needed to change in the EU, and we should have been at the front of that because there were already big creaks happening and, and, and cracks happening in the EU. But once it had happened, it had happened. And my view was that it needed to be done in a way that was actually illegal and democratic. And the fact was that was not what's going to be happened. Because Article 50 is very specific. It says it has to be triggered along the lines of your constitutional requirements. Our constitutional requirements is that the Prime Minister has to go to Parliament. So if Mrs May didn't go to Parliament and bypassed it, then what would have happened? The other side, and I was told this, they would be in legal limbo and they didn't know if internationally they could deal with us because Article 50 is part of an international treaty. So there were people I was speaking to internationally, not just in the EU, but in other courts who were saying, you then become a pariah state. And then we are in complete chaos because nobody would have known what our legal standing is. And to me, that's not what Britain is. You know, I'd grown up respecting everything about the UK. And to me, we are a country that abides by the law. Would you like the UK to rejoin the EU? I think we should in time. I absolutely think we should think about rejoining, but not because of my original reasons. Now it's because against the backdrop of the world we're living in, I think we need to be part of a bloc and a union to be able to deal with the things coming down the track, such as the geopolitical uncertainty, climate change, digital revolution. I don't believe that as a, an, an island we can survive against the big dinosaurs that are coming, which are China, India, and the US obviously will be there. But in a world that's so uncertain, I think we need to be part of a bigger bloc. And do you think that would have to be done for a referendum, really, to go back in? Referenda is something I don't believe in. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so destructive. Would it's so destructive. People would need a say. People would need to say. I mean, there, there are different choices. I think you either put it in a manifesto or you have citizens' assemblies. But I think there has to be a mechanism when time is right. And, and you know, what, I'd say, what I believe that should happen next is that we should become an associate member because I don't think the EU has actually decided what it needs to be and where it wants to be. And, and oddly, it, it's France of all the countries who are making noises about what they call the onion, the outer layer and the inner layer. And I, I, I actually think that's a good conversation debate to be having. Is there anything when you look at the UK's departure from the EU where you think that is a benefit of Brexit. It doesn't have to be big, but it's just anything where you think, you know, actually that is, you might see lots of the negatives, but you think, oh, actually that is something that, you know, I will admit is good. We should have made Brexit work, which sounds weird coming from me because the whole point is we left. And why would you want to damage your country? But I always knew because during the referendum um, debates, I went on a lot of debates and I was in a lot of green rooms. And I can say hand on heart 100%, Nobody on the Leave side that I met 
thought that they were going to win and had a plan. So from day one, I knew there wasn't a plan and there was very little understanding about the detail of different sectors and how things work and how business works. And I can honestly say I can't see a single benefit of Brexit. No, I can't. I mean, even even when people quote back at me the vaccines, actually, <laughs> that's not quite true. And there's going to be some backlash because those two weeks that we could have waited actually meant that um, they wouldn't have had the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is now, we know, has caused so many side effects. So there's going to very well be a big court case about the fact that we brought the vaccine in too early without seeing the data, you know, the full data. So, no, I, I can't. I can't see how we get back to a place where we're not suffering from a prosperity point of view, from a safety point of view and from a growth point of view. Yeah, and you can't see a way to make Brexit powers used differently for something. Because lots of people say, oh, there's something she could do, but the UK doesn't want to be a competitive enough country or do some of the things on trade deals in terms of welfare standards and so forth. No, because you have yeah. to look at where, A, we're a third country, and you know the mood music in other countries is that they are rightly being more nationalistic, protectionist, and, and they're understanding you know, around the world, everyone's suffering. So people are going to start protecting their own domestic trade and their own domestic interests. And so why would they be nice to the UK? They're going to put themselves first. And I think we're seeing that already. And it really does concern me what it means if Trump is in the, in, if it's Trump 2.0, and what that means for us from a security point of view on our doorsteps in Europe, what it means for trade and what it means about collaboration as we move forwards. And looking back, the Article 50 case, you know, that whole period, is there anything kind of you would do differently if you could turn back the clocks? Well, I've gone to, you've got the Article 50 case and the prorogation case, and I (laughs) never, ever thought, having gone through the whole first court case, I never, ever thought I'd be doing another court case. And, you know, in a way, the, I had to in, bring the second court case because the first, because I was one of the few people who had the standing, The proroguing, yeah. yeah. To bring the, the proroguing of parliament case. But, you know... Which for listeners was effectively saying you can't prorogue parliament to make Brexit. Yeah, so basically, I, I the second case was because Boris Johnson and his government couldn't get a deal through. So they were going to close down parliament for five to seven weeks and, and push through and leave with no deal past the 31st of October. And I knew that because I, I was talking to people in, in and around parliament. So I knew that was the plan. And again, how could you crash out without no deal, without no agreement? To me, it just seemed to be the most irresponsible thing you could do. So what would I do differently? I would not have been so naive to think that other people would join me because both financially from a security point of view, from an abuse point of view, it's so much better when you're part of a group. And as a campaign, I've tended to be part of a group rather than be on my own. It was incredibly lonely and and uh, bruising to go through those experiences. So I think I would have tried. But then again, I think I, I, I sort of debate this all the time with my family and my husband in particular. I'm not sure I could have changed anything because I'm not sure anybody else would have stepped up at that time because it was so febrile. You've since set up your own party. We will have an election sometime this year. Sometime. <laughs> which you don't completely bolts it and go yeah. through January 2025, yeah. despite promising he will not. Mm, and who knows? <laughs> you now have your own party, the True and Fair Party. What is your party about? And do you think you have a chance of winning? Look, uh, I'm not somebody who's a daydreamer. I'm very practical in what I do, in my businesses, my campaigning. I just believe that the status quo parties 
are not serving our country. We do not have electoral reform, which we should have, which is a fairer system. And I think, again, going back to those issues coming down the track, be it climate change or digital revolution, the fact we've got an aging population, the public person in the future will never have the amount of money we need to look after our public services. That's a given, as far as I'm concerned. So the idea of bringing a disruptive party, if you like, a, a one that is saying, look, we need to think longer term, we need to be more collaborative, we need to think about a new model, uh, an economic model, like a, a, a wellness-being economy, these are debates we can have in a new party that I could never have in another party. And I also think, I mean, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen, but I'm I'm one who believes I think we're heading towards more of a hung parliament than, than any sort of a really? landslide uh, for a number of reasons, which we could be a different level. bad the Tories are Despite what right everyone now. says, you have to look at the data and how 2019, the places where Labour were second are so far, the barriers are so high, you've got almost a third of the population saying they won't vote. You've got uh, time yet to see what they do on their budgets and their bribes, as I call them, the budgetary bribe. But I don't think anything is certain at the moment. So, And yeah, the idea that they've got to win 320 seats is a huge mountain to climb. When I go out, when I go out in Epsom and Newell and I go out, people don't know what Labour stand for and they say, but they won't vote for, for Conservatives. So they're saying they won't vote. And that is such a common retort on the doorstep. I mean, it may well change when the election's called because that will focus people's minds. But there is also a feeling of distrust that's so deep and apathy that what's the point? They're all the same. That's the, these are things you hear. You don't have to listen to focus groups. You just go out and spend a few days on the doorsteps and, and you hear the same phrases over and over again. And so in that environment, I think if I were one, you know, people say, what can one voice, you know, there are five of us standing, but what can even one MP do, even if it was, you know, we did the, the most historic thing ever and, and actually had one MP elected. And I'd say, well, look at what Caroline Lucas has done for environment. You know, it's become a mainstream issue that's now on the agenda for all the main parties. And for me, I think we have to have fundamental reform of our constitution and our electoral system. I mean, it is really hard for new parties. If Absolutely, you look, you, know, I know. you look at reform and the fact people are saying, "Oh, they're doing quite well at the moment." But even with that, well, reform is not that, a new party. Sure, you see. But, but even as a a fairly new party, I would say it's one where even if they manage to get to eleven percent in polling, most would say that the most they're going to just stop the Tories from getting. Yeah, seats, well, I think they will. Opposed... I think they will split the vote. That's the other yeah. reason why I think it'll be so, a hung parliament. So I just wondered. <laughs> So were you not a bit tempted to maybe join a party that already exists? I mean, like, why not the Lib Dems? They might be the closest to kind of way. No, because I was, I was, you know, I, I actually was very involved with the Labour Party and in 2015 wrote some, drafted some of the text for their manifesto on pension reform because it's my, it's my industry. So I actually was very senior and involved in that and Labour women and because of Jeremy Corbyn, I left. But the Lib Dems, I was approached to be maybe take over a, sig- a senior role there. But I think they've lost their way. They were supposed to be one of the party who were the ones who were revolutionary, if you think, who were going to push the boundaries. And I think they've lost their courage. So it's having a conversation about a different model when it comes to politics, economics, social models and, in, and community models that I think is really important that we have. And 
on the Lib Dem season, right? Is that more about kind of their stance on Europe, or just more generally? You think they're no longer no, that no, no. Kind I of mean, like, Europe, Europe. Uh, I'm capable. Point, I'm yeah. capable of differentiating the two things. Yeah. Brexit is about what happens internationally. Domestically, we have so much we've got to fix, and so you know they are not stepping up to the plate. I don't think domestically uh, on the big thinking that we need and the honesty we need to tell the public about what is happening to our economy, what's happening with our growth. What's actually the fact is we're going to have to roll our sleeves up and work together to get out of where we are today you do share something in common with Nigel Farage (laughs) (laughs) I've been told this which one do you mean (laughs) well I'm I'm happy there's more Um, but you've both been debanked yeah, no, so so Nigel was debanked from Coots and as a political party, we were debanked. Actually, what I have found, not only is it difficult to be a political party because of the political structures, but also you can't get a bank account. You can't get insurance. We can't get, um, we had work experience over summer. We had lots of young people. We have a high number of young people who come to us as a party. I couldn't get insurance for people to do work placements or internship with us. So we're denied all of those access to financial services. But it was quite amusing to me when I woke up one after uh, Nigel was debanked and the next morning I got sent a message saying, have you seen this tweet? Nigel and Jacob Rees-Mogg have both said they stand with you, Gina. And I thought, that's an odd thing to, to have woken up and seen. But no, yeah, I mean, you didn't it, take them up yeah, on the offer. No, I didn't take them up on the offer. But but the fact is, it's you know, our system is wrong because if you enter into politics at every level, even if you're a councillor and you stand up and want to exercise your civic duty and you have a voice in politics, you become what's called a politically exposed person and you then can't get a bank account and your family can't. It, it is wrong. We've got to change those rules. You can't stop people standing up and being political. Yeah, it's probably just another reason people will be deterred from giving it a go. Yeah, no, no, it, there are so many barriers. But, you know, why, you know, it's even to the point that you're, you can't stand in your business. You, you lose everything. Everything becomes a risk if you're a pep. And finally, and I'm sure you've been offered lots of this. What is, oh, what's the, that? what is the worst advice you've ever been given? It's a question we ask everyone oh. on this podcast. Um, I'll go back to the 90s when I was in the city. And I was told, if you want to get on Gina, you should always tell a man he's right. Wow. <laughs> I remember the time thinking, okay, even if, no, that's how you get on as a woman. You had to always tell a man that he was right. So it's safe to say you ignored it. I ignore it. (laughs) Thank you, Gina.